Romel Joseph was born in Gonavi, Haiti on May 19, 1959. Romel was born completely blind in one eye and partially blind in the other, and at the age of five, he was declared legally blind. At a young age, he fell in love with music and continued to learn and train as opportunities became available. In January of 1978, uh, Rommel became a student at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and graduated with honors in violin performance. And in 1985, he received a Fulbright grant and was accepted at the prestigious Juilliard School in New York City, where he received his Master's of Music degree in violin performance. Rommel spent the next eight years working for different music schools in Haiti, and in 1991, he started a classical music school which was designed to offer all children the educational opportunity and the chance to study a musical instrument. On January 12, 2010, Rommel Joseph and his wife, Meesley, were finishing up their day at the New Victorian School of Music in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Rommel stepped outside on the balcony to take a cell phone call when he heard a loud crash and a boom. He felt the floor underneath his feet opening up, and he was falling. Concrete and furniture and musical instruments and bookcases were all tumbling down upon him. After the loud rumblings and the sounds of metal and stone, he got very quiet. Rommel blacked out. When he awoke, he realized that the balcony and the building that he was in had collapsed. He tried to wiggle around and get free, but he couldn't move, and he was aware of incredible pain in his legs and in his hand. Measley, he cried out in the darkness, Measley, are you there? Can you hear me? No answer. Next, Rommel began to pray. First, he prayed a quiet whisper of, thank you, Lord, that the children were not in the school building when the earthquake hit. Laying under the wreckage, Rommel said that he began to reflect on all the good things Jesus had done in his life. He thought of his family, his two grown children. He thought of his, his wife, who was expecting their third child in March. And then he began to pray even more intensely for 20 minutes at a time or so. And then as he began to pray, he began to see his music. First, he pictured himself playing a Tchaikovsky concerto. And then every hour, another concerto. He said, I know I picked the Brahms, I picked the Franz, the Sibelius. I picked several, Rommel said. I know a lot of concertos for violin, and I picked the longer ones. And so as the hours passed by and his friends tried to rescue him from the debris. Another prayer, another concerto took place below. He said, I pictured walking on stage and playing to a full hall right up to the very end. His friends were able to remove him from the rubble of the school 18 hours after the earthquake, and later that week he was airlifted from Port-au-Prince to, to Miami to a hospital. Reflecting on his survival, he says this, it's all in the way you look at things. See, our ability to see can sometimes be the difference between life and death. Our sight is a gift from God that we often don't think about when there, until there's something wrong with it. What does it mean to see? And I don't mean the process of our eye capturing an image and transferring it to our brain for processing. Specifically, what does the Bible mean when it talks about seeing? Today, I want to answer that question by inviting you into one of the most spectacular accounts of someone receiving their sight in the Bible. 
Our text today is John 9. Uh, but before we start, as always, let's review and get some context. John's gospel has a strong focus on the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus. See, John is not just interested in giving you information about Jesus. Like many of his other characters in his gospel account, he wants you to encounter Jesus for yourself in a life-changing way. Jesus is seen as the revealer of Father God and His ways. And the theme of light versus dark is a prominent theme in the book of John. John 1, John 1 verse 4 says, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John details a series of seven miracles that function as signs to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And John clearly states his purpose for writing the book later in John 20. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, my, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 9 is structured with three distinct sections, and today we're going to look at them and explore them as a three-act play. Act 1, the healing. Act 2, the trial. And Act 3, the response. And the primary characters in John 9 are a man born blind, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And as we go along through this, uh, this chapter, I want you to notice here in this story there's a pattern of Jesus upsetting people's expectations. Act 1, the healing begins with Jesus and His disciples uh, just walking out of the temple at the end of chapter 8 where He's receiving death threats from the Pharisees. So, situation normal. No surprises there. But the action picks up here in verse 1 in John 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with a saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, before we go any further, I want you to try to imagine yourself in this man's situation. The man doesn't have a name, and as we know, when a character doesn't have a name, you, we are invited into the story to be that person. So we know that the man is blind from birth, and we know that he's on the side of the road when Jesus sees him. So it's safe to assume that he's an outcast. There's probably a good probability that he's hungry. He's probably not very clean. He's probably lonely and ashamed of his condition. And some important things jump right out of the text here. First, the disciples ask Jesus if the man is blind because of his sin or his parents' sins. In other words, it's got to be somebody's fault. 
See, it was common at the time to view sickness as the result of personal sin. And I know it's easy for us to judge the disciples for their callousness, but if we're honest, we often have the same reaction to people today who are suffering. We make quick decisions about them without having all of the information. But Jesus doesn't do that. He won't be boxed into anyone's theology. He says the blindness isn't a result of any specific sin, but that God is going to do a mighty work in this man's life. Jesus is about to demonstrate the proper theology by healing the man's blindness. And this is a tremendous act of love and compassion, especially compared to the disciples treating him as a theological case study. Now, in verse 5, Jesus declares himself as the light of the world. This is an important theme for John. The light of Jesus exposes the world, the light of Jesus judges the world, and the light of Jesus saves the world. And Jesus himself uses contrasting imagery here of day and night to signal a sense of urgency and that his time on earth will be brief and the time in the window of grace is short. Jesus then, in verse 6, spits on the ground and makes mud with the saliva, puts it on his eyes. I consider the man for a moment, and remember, remember his situation. See, he's probably used to hearing people clear their throats in order to spit, but it's usually spit that lands on him. See, Jesus takes the mud, puts it on him, and says, go to the pool of Siloam, and, and that Hebrew word says there, it's translated, means sent. And Jesus as sent from God is another prominent theme in John's gospel. John 5 verse 36 says, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. John 6 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. John 8 42, I have not come on my own, God sent me. So here we have Jesus, the sent one, sending the blind man to the pool called sent. It's a big theme here in John. The man obeys, he goes and washes in the pool, and he comes home seeing. He can see. Imagine the incredible joy, the excitement, the wonder that this man is now experiencing. For the first time in his life, he's able to see the sun. For the first time in his life, he's able to see the beautiful array of colors in the city. For the first time in his life, he's able to see what his food looks like. He's able to see the emotions painted on a human face. He comes back to his neighborhood ready to share his joy with his neighbors who see him, but they fail to see the miracle. And instead of a celebration, he's met with questions. Instead of a party, he's met with indifference. The neighbors then begin to debate over the identity of the man. Some say that he was the blind man who sits on the road begging. Others say it's somebody that just looks like him. There's a big discussion about that. And the man just says, hey, no, no, I'm the guy. He's stepping out saying, that's me. John 9 verse 10, they say, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. Verse 11, he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. 
He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Well, this just won't do. It's almost like the crowd is upset that he got healed and that he's moving up in life. See, the crowd wants answers. So it's off to see the Pharisees, and that's the end of Act 1. Act 2, the trial, starts off with the neighbors bringing the man before the Pharisees for their opinion on the matter. Verse 13, they brought the Pharisees to the man who'd been formerly, who had, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. He's like, I'm telling you people, it's the same thing. But here, see, we've got a big problem because the keeping the, fair, the, keeping the Sabbath was a major, major issue for the Pharisees. See, for the Pharisees, keeping the letter of the law was of supreme importance to maintain a right standing before God. But really, that, that's the problem with man-made religion. Man-made religion is a rules-based approach to God. It's, it's man-centered. In other words, it's all about us. It's all about our ability to work harder. It's all about our ability to do better and to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And see, in that system of man-made religion, you don't need God's grace and forgiveness. It's all about performance. As a former Pharisee, I, I know firsthand about man-made religion. Just after college, when I was saving money to, to move to, to, to New York, I worked at a, uh, as a server at a restaurant in town here called Asia Teak. Uh, it's closed now, but it was a great restaurant. I've got a lot of fond memories from Asia Teak. It's where I, I met Becky. I also made some amazing friends there. There's one guy in particular named Steve Sato, who is still a, a dear friend today. Now, Steve always wanted to engage. He, he, he always wanted to talk about deep things and spiritual things. And I remember one conversation in particular. I, di I didn't have a car at the time. He gave me a ride home after our shift. And we ended up talking in his car for a couple of hours just about uh, religion and what happens after you die. And he, he told me about God. He told me about God's love, about His unconditional love that's demonstrated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he, he told me it wasn't about what I did, but it was about what Christ had already accomplished. And then I told him about my religion, about being a good person and about how doing good things, um, God would of course accept that into heaven. And we agreed to disagree as good friends do, but I, I left that conversation feeling sad because that we wouldn't see each other in the next life, because we both couldn't be right. A few years later, I, I understood what he meant when God was trying to get my attention. I understood that trying to fulfill God's standard of perfection is humanly impossible. And if we're honest, we know that trying to fulfill our own standard of perfection is impossible. And trying to do that will crush you. See, that's the anti-gospel. And, and back then, trying to keep my own law of perfection by being a good person and being a nice guy almost drove me to suicide. Because when religion is confronted with grace, there is oftentimes a violent reaction. 
This happened to Jesus all the time. In Mark 3, it tells a story of another man who was being healed. In Mark 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked the Pharisees, again, he's dealing with the Pharisees here. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed with their heart said, stretch out your hand. So he heals the man completely. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with how they might kill Jesus. Don't miss the irony here. The the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of working on the Sabbath by healing, but they're working on the Sabbath by going out to plot and kill Jesus. The Apostle Paul later in 2 Corinthians 3 says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is, of course, a reference to the old covenant Mosaic law versus the new covenant of grace. See, Jesus was always bringing life into every situation He encountered. In John 9, because this happened on the Sabbath, the Pharisees begin to question the man about what happened. And the man just gives a brief summary of the facts. He says simply, he put mud on my eyes, I washed it, and now I see. It's so simple. Notice here in our text in John 9 that, that Jesus actually is off the stage at this point. But make, make no mistake about it, it's Jesus who's on trial here as the man is being questioned. John 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And just like the neighbors, there's a debate among the Pharisees. Some reject Jesus immediately because of Sabbath keeping. Others say, a sinner wouldn't be able to do these kind of signs. But what's happening here is the Pharisees, as they, de- they, they, they debate uh, what happened, there, there's, a, there's a, uh, an unraveling that begins to happen. They begin to waver. And in the midst of their disagreement over Jesus, they then do the most unthinkable thing. They ask a broken, uneducated man for his theological opinion. Verse 17, finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes they opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Now, notice here how the man's spiritual sight is improving as he receives greater revelation of Jesus' identity. He moved from first calling him the man, Jesus, now to calling him a prophet, Now, the Pharisees, they're digging in their heels. They still don't believe, even after hearing the man's testimony. So then, what do they do? They call in his parents. They're desperate. They're going to do anything they can to discredit Jesus. And the way to discredit Jesus is to destroy this man's credibility. So they begin to ask the parents if he was born blind to see if that's true. And how can he see? Verse 20, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. This is abuse of power, fear, and intimidation. Now, what comes next is one of the most spectacular exchanges in the entire Bible. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. In other words, you better tell the truth. You better, you better own up. The man said in verse 25, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. See, the man doesn't get into a theological debate. He just tells his story. He just presents the facts. Listen, there will always be the doubters, the jealous, the religious, and the fools who try to talk you out of your miracle and out of your authentic encounter with Jesus. Don't listen to them. Listen, the final apologetic for Jesus is a transformed life. Wednesday night at, our, our, at the men's Bible study uh, in Titus, we were discussing uh, this, this very topic, actually. And, and one of the discussion questions was this. It said, how could thinking about your former life compel you to care for those in your life who do not know Christ? And see, we all have a story. And some of you here today may not feel like you're much of a theologian. You may see Pastor Tim or Pastor Carol and think, I can never speak like that. Or there's no way I could know much, that much Scripture or theology. But listen, here in John 9, we have a man who was blind and an outcast just hours ago who has no theological training who's giving the Pharisees ulcers just by telling his testimony. Are you kidding me? So please, take courage. God can use you. Some of you have an incredible story of deliverance and rescue, and people need to hear what this good God has done in your life. We are living in an age of increasing hostility towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're seeing a growing darkness in the world and in our nation, and you don't need to be a prophet to see what's happening. Jesus said in the last days, things would get very difficult. So we're not surprised. We're not, we're not shocked by that. But that doesn't mean we can be passive. We are called to be witnesses, to testify to God's goodness in our lives, how Jesus has rescued us and made us new and given us a new story. Matthew 5, 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Just as Jesus is the light of the world and His light is now in us, Jesus is saying, don't, don't hide what you have. Let it shine bright in the darkness. 
See, it's very bright in the sanctuary right now. It's very, very bright on this stage, okay? But listen, we will never fulfill our mission by just bringing our light to church and shining them on each other. Are you hearing me? The darkness is out there in the midst of broken, hurting people. They live next door to you. They work with you. They go to school with you. Jesus is calling us to enter into their darkness with His light. Back to John 9 where we see the Pharisees continue to resist the light. Notice how the Pharisees' intensity continues to build. Verse 26, then they asked Him, what did He do to you? How did He open your eyes? Now, at this point, the man sees what's happening. See, he realizes this is not a quest for truth, but this is just a show of power. He understands he's just a pawn in their religious chess match. And the man, it's, it's pretty funny, begins to show his, his gift of sarcasm. Don't miss the humor here, okay? Verse 29, he answered, I have already, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? <laughs> but notice here how the man already counts himself as a disciple of Jesus. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The Pharisees come totally unglued. Verse 28, here we go. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. Let's look at his boldness. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, and they can't take it anymore, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. See, they're not interested in argument anymore, right? Instead, they personally attack the man. By going after his most painful spot, they attack and refer that, that he was he was born blind. Again, the irony is, is so thick. They admit what they were arguing about the whole time, that he was born blind. The Pharisees are unable to use argument or evidence and resort, resort to quoting their theological resume. We are disciples of Moses. And by doing that, they are invoking their version of playing the God card to silence their opponent. Have you ever noticed how playing the God card ends all discussion? All right. It's the appeal to ultimate authority. Well, God, God told me to end my relationship with my wife for 20 years, to abandon my kids and marry this younger woman. 
God told me to buy this new car because I work hard and He wants me to be blessed even though my credit card is maxed out. Or, or even worse, God is telling you to quit your job and become a missionary. God is telling you to fill in the blank. Please hear me. If you're going to use God's name to justify your own sin or manipulate others, we need to just call that out for what that is. It's a form of spiritual abuse. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. And the blindness of the Pharisees is now clear. The religious experts, they, they fail to see not only the evidence of the man who's right before them who can now see, but they fail to see the Messiah who the Old Testament prophesied would come with such signs. Isaiah 29, 18, In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind. The man has just been humiliated by the religious leaders, and Acts 2 closes with the man being more of an outcast than he was before. And some of you are here today, and you can identify with that man. You feel alone, and you feel rejected. And if that's you, I want you to know that Jesus knows how you feel. See, when Jesus was on the earth, He was abandoned by those who were closest to Him. But of all the promises in the Bible, few can give you as much comfort as this, which is stated in both the Old Testament and the New, and that is this, God promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And someone needs to hear that today, and if that's you, please let that in. So far, we've completed Act 1, the healing, Act 2, the trial, and now we come to the closing act, the response. And it starts with Jesus re-entering the stage, and now John brings the story to a glorious conclusion. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord... I believe. And he worshiped. Mm. This is an incredibly touching scene. This is the first time the man has seen Jesus face to face. And I want you to imagine the love, the compassion, and the smile on the face of Jesus. It's powerful. Mm. Jesus now completes the man's ability to see by revealing to him in person, not only as his healer, but as his Savior. The man's sight leads to a crescendo in worship because if you see Jesus for who he truly is, you will worship him. And see, the question Jesus asked the man is the same question that he's been asking for 2,000 years. Do you believe in me as the Son of God, the Messiah? 
It's the most important question you will ever be asked. And your answer depends on whether or not you fully see your need. John Newton was born in London in 1725. When he was little, his mother prayed that he would become a minister and it early on taught him the Scriptures and taught him many hymns, in particular Isaac Watts' songs for children. But at the age of 11, he joined his father on a ship as an apprentice, uh, his, and his seagoing career would be marked by much pain and suffering. And much of his life in, on the sea was in the service of the slave trade. As he grew older, Newton would radically reject all Christian influence from his childhood. John Newton, in the, his sailing days, was actually known as the great blasphemer. He had a reputation for for profanity and coarseness and just sin that shocked many a sailor. He was known to engage in any and all sin and joyfully led other people away from their faith. He was such a bad shipmate that his his crewmates actually left him in Sierra Leone where he spent himself three years as a slave of Princess Paye of the Sherbro people. In March of 1784, He was rescued, but on the journey in the North Atlantic, they encountered a severe storm that thrashed the ship for over a week. It ripped the sails. It gashed a huge hole in the hull, uh, and it was just splintered. And at this point, the sailors had little hope of survival. They mechanically worked the pumps to try to keep the vessel afloat. And on the 11th day of the storm, John Newton was too exhausted to pump, so they tied him to the helm and, and so he could try to help keep the ship on its course. And from one o'clock to midnight, he was at the helm. And when all looked lost, Newton cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Miraculously, the hole was plugged and most of the crew and the ship survived. Years later, Newton recalled that moment saying, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. Several years later, Newton would leave the marine life altogether, and and in 1764, at the age of 39, he would become a pastor in the village of Olney in England, where he began to write hymns with a poet named William Cowper. Years later, in 1773, Newton wrote a poem as a sermon illustration, actually, and that first verse of that poem actually became the first verse of his most famous hymn. This is what it says, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. T'was blind, but now I see. John Newton later became an ally of William Wilberforce, who was the leader of the parliamentary campaign to abolish the African slave trade. Newton, by God's grace, lived to see the passage of the the Slave Slave Trade Act of 1807, which would eventually pave the way for the abolition of slavery. And like John Newton, and like the man in John 9, we're all born blind. 2 Corinthians 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said... 
let light shine out of darkness. It is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And like the blind man, Jesus finds us when we're at our lowest point and invites us to look at His face and in His face to behold His glory, His goodness, His amazing grace, His unshakable sacrificial love. And like the gift of sight we see in John 9, the gift of life is completely free of charge. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. And we absolutely don't deserve it. We just receive it. Jesus paid a terrible price so that we might truly see. And by truly seeing, we might truly live. This chapter ends with an ominous postscript. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. As we come to a close, the question to you is, How do you see? Do you see like the blind man which leads to life? Or do you see like the Pharisee? which leads to darkness.